The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day. I'm delighted to welcome you today to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Stephen Wagner is on a break today. As we've said before, sometimes he heads out to be dad. And this weekend he is tennis dad with his daughter, who's a promising young tennis star, in the again coming into the high school ranks. So it's just me from the Wagner and Winnick part, but I am delighted that today we are introducing a new aspect of our show across the voiceamerica.com network. We have added a component called International Crossroads, and a voice that you've heard on our show a number of times as an expert guest is joining us as a guest co-host at least twice a month, international attorney Michael Cohen. Michael, welcome to our first edition of International Crossroads. Thanks, Mitch. It's great to be here, and this is extraordinarily exciting um, to have the opportunity um, to um, bring in guests on a regular basis who stand at the International Crossroads and um, somehow have managed to break through them and accelerate positive change in some area of the world that leaves us all better off or the planet better off um, is uh, a, a wonderful subject matter for our, for our show. And we've talked about it before. There are so many times that international law is right there on the headlines of the daily paper. And so not only can we talk about these different issues in a greater depth during the show, but there'll be times that we'll just be hitting the top top stories because you only have to look as far as the headlines to see something going on. Yeah, and the great thing uh, about international law in the global environment is nobody can hide anymore. Nobody's sort of looking um, uh, at, at a local level um, uh, where they can hide behind a barrier. And, and that is, in fact, the crossroads that we're going to try to examine on our shows going forward. Well, I'm pretty excited that, not pretty excited, I am very excited that we've picked a topic today that is a perfect place to start as far as international law, but being a coastal community, as folks know, we originate this show in Santa Cruz, California, one of the, the world's greatest coastal zones. So what's our first topic this week? So our, our first topic and our first host, um, uh, our first guest, rather, um, is Susan S. Jackson, the president of the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. And she's a remarkable woman who stood at the International Crossroads in 2008, um, where there was, uh, at least um, in the uh, views of many, um, a perceived problem with something we all take for granted. 
which is tuna. And it's a long-term sustainability. Well, I, since, since I am an avid sushi eater, I could eat sushi every meal, every day. I'm going to have to ask Susan sooner or later today whether I'm part of the, the solution or part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, but so I'm delighted. We have Susan Jackson, as you said. She's president and member of the board of directors of the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation, ISS. F. As you said, she's done that since 2008. And some of the things I think is just amazing is that this, this action has taken Susan not only around the country but around the globe since, as we're going to learn from her, that tuna do, tuna do not follow national boundaries. So uh, Susan was a featured speaker on sustainability at prominent events such as the Rio Plus 20 Global Environment Facility Meeting in Washington, D.C., Rome, and Mexico, European Union's Fishing Capacity Less is More Conference, and she's presented for the World Bank, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, and the Senate Oceans Conference. Susan, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and Susan, I should say, add uh, th thank you for actually dropping in to Santa Cruz here um, on route to uh, Bangkok, I believe, next week. So <laughs> yep. uh, we're we're really pleased to have you here in the studio in person. <laughs> and you know, I have to say that this isn't exactly a direct line, Susan, between where you live and Bangkok. Although I guess one, it's almost it's not is. too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, Susan, tell us a little about this starting this foundation. Your, your background, which I didn't mention, is you're an attorney, as Michael and I are. Mm -hmm. So, you must have come into this work initially as an attorney. I did, actually. Um, I started my career out as a litigator and was in the law department of the H.J. Hines Company, which at the time owned Starkist. And I was assigned to be the lawyer on the Starkist business. So you were Charlie's lawyer. I was. I never <laughs> thought of it like that. That's tremendous. I have a new Facebook profile now. <laughs> but yes. Um, and so I spent four years doing the legal work for the Starkist business unit and then was asked to move over to a business role. So I've been, I, I still keep my license up, so I still am technically a lawyer, but I haven't actually been a lawyer since 2001. And I've been involved in the tuna industry, first in the business, and then now on the uh, environmental and sustainability side since 2008. So we're going to talk about the details of what your organization does. But one of the things that really caught me in your bio, and it's repeated a number of times, and I have to believe it's a part of the foundation of what you did, is the word collaboration comes up over and over. So I know nothing about the management of tuna on a global scale, but it would seem to me that there are a lot of different players in this game and that collaborative piece must be really important. Talk to us a little about that. Sure. Well, I think collaboration is, is critical, but I think ISSF was one of the first groups that took those disparate voices, those different players from sort of the, the rock-throwing mentality into the looking for what we can do in common and work together mentality. Because if you think of a, of a typical sort of issue, any issue, pick any environmental issue, not fisheries, it doesn't matter, you have governments trying to regulate. You have people in industry trying to do their business. You have NGOs who are very, very interested in a cause or a purpose. Some of them are trying to solve it. Some of them and are NGOs just, are non-governmental organizations. Yes. So, Some of them yeah. are trying to raise awareness. You have scientists trying to tell people what to do. Um, and, and at it, the end of the day, you have me at the sushi bar wanting to have wanting my to tuna. Eat it. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, people are really good about 
planning about problems, but not so good necessarily about pulling together to develop a solution. And that's really what ISSF has been about since the very beginning. First of all, from the industry side, we started with the eight largest tuna companies in the world that represented major purchasers of every species of tuna from every ocean, except bluefin, about 50% of the total volume with those eight companies. And they had spent their entire corporate lives fighting against each other, but they realized that on sustainability and conservation, they needed to work together, together with the government regulators and together with the environmental community and together with the scientists. And I always like the question, I don't ask people what the other groups are doing wrong. I ask people, look around the table, what can every other group around this table do that helps you do your job better? That's really interesting. So, Michael, take us into the international law aspect of this. As, as we were talking before the show started, you know, the, the tuna aren't following the treaty boundaries. Yeah. So, <laughs> rather than... Um, Susan, what, what, why does tuna stand at the international crossroads? So, one of the really cool things about tuna is an individual tuna, as well as a stock of tuna, the whole big group, will swim entirely across an ocean basin multiple times in its life, really, really long distances. And when you look at the ocean and you understand the different laws that apply, first you have a country that may be a collection of islands. And if you draw a line around the outermost perimeter of the island, the inside of that has the legal significance of Lake Tahoe. I mean, that's a national water and they can do whatever we could do in Lake Tahoe. Um, then you go out 12 miles that's known as their territorial waters. Then you go out 200 miles and it's called an exclusive economic zone. And then all the waters that's none of those are the high seas. And tunas just swim in all of them. <laughs> so, and they don't stay in any of them. And they don't stay in any of them, exactly. So in order to manage the stock of a particular species of tuna, you have to understand the science and the fishing activity and the laws and the regulation on in all of those types of waters. So one country can't do it alone, one state can't do it alone. There are five major organizations, basically each ocean has its own and around a very, very large table for each are all of the coastal countries plus all of the other countries that are fishing there. So you have dozens of countries listening to the science and then deciding what they're going to do about a particular situation on a particular stock. And Susan, what are these organizations, these five organizations that match up to the world's oceans? So they're called Regional Fisheries Management Organizations. And in the Atlantic Ocean, it's called ICAT. In the Indian Ocean, it's the IOTC, Indian Ocean Tuna Commission. In the Eastern Pacific, it's called the IATTC. In the Western and Central Pacific, it's the WCPFC. And in the Southern Ocean, CCSBT. A lot right. of letters. I'll never well, use well, them Well, with again. that alphabet soup, we're going to go out on our first break. When we come back, you're listening to Susan Jackson, and we're talking about not just the law of the sea, but in this case, the law of sea food. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, Dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. I have as my guest co-host today, international lawyer Michael Cohen with the law firm of Shepard Mullen. And we are delighted to have as our guest today Susan Jackson, who is president of the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. And Susan had just started talking to us about how complicated this idea of managing seafood, and in this case, tuna, particularly on a global scale. So, Michael? Yeah, so Susan, tell us a little bit about the law behind tuna. You mentioned these five organizations that are responsible for managing the species across the world's oceans. What's the force of law behind these organizations? What are, what are they? Well, they're international treaty bodies, actually. And, and so the overarching governing documents would be the UN treaties on the law of the sea and the fish stocks agreement and then they get trickled down to other treaties that govern a particular convention that is an rfmo got it um so let's take one of them for mm -hmm. example that so these this is u.n convention treaty law this is this is the heart of in of the international crossroads we're we're talking about nations attempting to cooperate or not cooperate by bilateral and sometimes multilateral agreements that they reach between each other. And they reach those agreements here with respect to fish. So let's say uh, the United States must belong to more than one. Scores. Right? Scores. I think. Right? Yeah. And why is that? Well, the United States has a lot of coast, for starters. <laughs> Got a lot of coast. Got a lot of, on two oceans, yes. at least, and then yeah. some more with mm -hmm. territories, right? Right. So why are these, are these conventions effective? Well, <laughs> it depends. A lawyer's pause. Yes, a it, lawyer's pause. We, with the following with it depends. I know. <laughs> See, I remember a few things. They all have positives and they all have some things to work on. But at their heart, you have to understand that it is a collection of governments sitting around a table. And the governments are cons a collection of constituents sitting behind the person at the government at the microphone. So each government, you may have a country that's primarily a coastal country that's concerned about boats fishing in their waters. You may have a country that's primarily a fishing country that's their constituents are you know, more, most concerned about just being able to fish and some countries are both. And some, some countries are good conservationists and some countries don't give a darn, right? Well, and some countries have a food security issue. And some countries, it's economic security issue, and some countries are importing and consuming states. So there's many, many issues at play. So and how can, how can they be So, Michael, but you're talking about, and, and there are no, there's no such thing as treaty police. Right. 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 So, so now so, we're talking multiple countries. Right. So they're really doing it, A, politically, because they've agreed to do it, but who enforces it? Exactly. Yes. So what happens at an RFMO meeting, typically, is the scientists from their review of the data, will make a recommendation, let's say, of a conservation measure that needs to happen. Some sort of change to the amount of fishing activity that's happening today. And then that gets made to this group of governments, and then they negotiate. And so I'm sure like climate change, all the scientists absolutely agree as to the base numbers. <laughs> Mostly. Actually, really, they do. Do they? Must? Uh, in, reading you know. your, in reading the information from your, from your foundation site, it did seem to me like that at the basis of the science of measuring the, the food stock, mm -hmm. measuring the, the number of fish that they're monitoring, 
that it appeared that there seemed to be some global acceptance of how to measure that. Is so, that yeah, so fair? Yes, let's, let's go backwards on that for just yeah. a second, Mitch. So Susan said something interesting. She said, the scientists make recommendations, and then people start to negotiate. Right. Well, they're negotiating away from, aren't they? By definition, if there's, if there, the science is what it is. The science says you need to do this to sustain the fish. So why is that a negotiation? Why aren't why isn't somebody just doing it? Right. I, and the negotiation never takes it up. They never, you know, it doesn't result in doing more than what the scientists ask. The question is, are we going to do what the scientists ask or some amount less? That's typically the way the negotiations work. One of the big pushes that our organization and others are working on now is something that's called a harvest control rule. So you can agree before there's a problem because in theory it should be easier to agree then that when the stock gets to this point, then this is what will automatically happen. And if the stock gets to that point, then that is what will automatically happen. So that you can try to take some of these emotional politics at the time out of it and start to make things more formulaic. Okay, so here's the, pro the problem I think that you're identifying, if I'm hearing it, is that there is firm science that knows how to manage a migratory species across the world's oceans. But politics, international politics by treaty, international law, then plays a role in changing that science as if they're negotiating down the law of gravity and every <laughs> once in a while we can go up in the air. Uh, you know, so, but whatever they're doing, they're playing with something that's at least relatively straightforward and what becomes um, a sustainability issue then becomes an international political issue yes. and that creates potential for logjam. Yes. And then if you get over that hurdle, <laughs> okay, so you get all the countries to agree and they right. agree to do something. How many times has that happened in the world of history? Um, a lot, actually. Yeah. And, and it's happening more frequently. So that is good. We really are starting to see some progress in, in that part of it. But then what has to happen is every one of those member countries has to go back home, pass a national law, and enforce it. Oh, my gosh. Because those fish are going to come into their territories, as you described at the top of the show. Right. And so that so. becomes, that's, then, then it's political over again, because then you have the lobbyists from the business industries of that country. And I guess that's part of what you were doing when you were initially a lawyer for Heinz. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is that you were making sure that those laws didn't eliminate your business opportunity. That's something that can be an issue, uh, that can be a concern. And but around here, we have a lot of independent fleets of fishermen who serve those industries. So it really comes down. I have a good friend here in town, and he has uh, four boats. And when there's certain seasonal changes, and they come down and say, the season's been delayed for three weeks, those boats, those families are sitting idle. It's not that they have something else to do with those fishing boats when they're left at the dock. Sure, there's a lot at stake. I mean, as Susan said, that, that's, that's a, a localized economy that's impacted by a sustainability measure. Right, and that is the exact kind of concerns that those national negotiators are hearing in that group that's sitting behind them. And take a national political will out of it, sometimes it's capacity building as well. You have countries, developing countries, developing coastal countries that don't have necessarily the infrastructure or the rule of law or the governance or trained prosecutors or trained police or ships to go out and look at what's going on in their waters to effectively enforce the rules that 
have been passed. So there's a lot of capacity building and partnerships that has to happen as well so that measures when they are adopted are actually implemented effectively. So as a foundation, so which part of all of that do you guys tackle? Because that seems like an incredibly complex and challenging piece. So, so what does your foundation do? So we do all of that. The International <laughs> Seafood Sustainably Fast. And you must have thousands of people. No, I saw well, them there. You don't have thousands no, of people. No, we don't have thousands of people, <laughs> but we do have 26 now, about 75% of the world's tuna processor. Okay, hold on to that. We're going to come back and talk about how you do what, we're, what we've just <laughs> described as a complex issue right after this break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Laubardier, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. 
Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law here at KSCO AM 1080 in Santa Cruz and across the country and the globe on voiceamerica.com. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of the show, and I have my guest co-host today, Michael Cohen, who's an international lawyer and our guest host guest host for International Crossroads. And today we have as our guest Susan Jackson, who's president of the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. A mouthful and a busy job. Yeah, it, it, it certainly sounds like it. And uh, Susan, thanks so much for describing this fascinating subject matter where all of a sudden we learn that when we go to the store and we see something sitting on the shelf that's round and cylindrical and looks like a can of tuna, um, that that uh, came from some processor who turned tuna fish into a can of tuna somewhere around the world, and that the fish that it came from are managed by international treaty convention um, organizations um, that negotiate science, which sounds odd to me still. Um, and uh, uh, that created a little bit of um, a potential problem for tunas around the world when you're swimming from one ocean to another as to um, 
whether or not you're going to be managed successfully. No tuna passports. No tuna passports. And um, the tuna apparently don't have much regard for the territorial waters that Susan described. So what is it that... Um, you get, there's a lot of people paying attention to this, though. There are scientists, there are governments, there are environmental groups um, famously uh, around the world that uh, do a wonderful job of bringing visibility to these kinds of issues. Um, what, what role did ISSF play in this? In 2008, ISSF came about and accelerated some change, some solution to this problem. Talk to us about that. So... The number one rule or philosophy of ISSF is with all their foibles, RFMOs, regional fisheries management organizations, these treaty bodies are the group that needs to manage tunas because of the way tunas are, that just is what it needs to be. So recognizing that you have a collection of governments and each government has a collection of voices, we want to help those governments do what they need to do to effectively manage tunas. And the first thing we thought we could do is make sure that as many governments sitting around the table would hear from as many voices as possible sitting behind them a request to do the same thing, which is what the scientists said. So the most basic thing that our organization does is all of the participating companies, all of the NGOs that work together with us, as many fleets as work together with us, they all send the same letter to every government that they touch that asks them to do X, Y, and Z, which is lifted straight from the scientific recommendations. Then we also have a collection of advisory bodies that, that talk to the board. We have the industry advisory body, that's the processors, but we also have a collection of scientists where we have some of the leading scientists from each one of these RFMO regions that form a scientific advisory committee and we've helped fund their work and globalize the science, make sure that all the oceans are, are talking to each other and, and helping to fill gaps in data and science so that the scientists can give the best scientific advice that they can. For example, the participating companies, they send all their purchase data down to a vessel and a trip and a specie and a size within a month of the close of the calendar quarter where official government statistics take 18, 24, 36 months to come in. Sometime they don't come in at all. So how well, that, can... That just seems like an astounding amount of collaboration, particularly for at the in the corporate structure. It is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we think that ISSF was one of the first truly robust public-private partnerships that brought this many stakeholders together. So obviously you had to build an enormous amount of trust that yes. you would protect that data because that is proprietary data to mm -hmm. them. It's tonnage. It tells, and from that, I guess you can determine revenue and profits and things like that. So I'm sure they're very touchy about that. They are very touchy about that, justifiably. And fortunately, this is another plus of an RFMO, they already had data confidentiality rules. So the companies don't send their data to me. They send it to the RFMO scientists that already have very sophisticated confidentiality rules with regard to how they handle data in place. So again, that's an example of building on an existing structure and making that existing structure better. Is it different for tuna than for other fish? Because I mean, tuna is not the only migratory fish. I assume it's just so broadly used as a food stock that it's a critical one, but there must be others. 
Well, if you look at some of the other species that these the same regional fisheries management organizations deal with that, that manage with tunas, some of them deal with swordfish, some of them deal with some marlins. Um, there's there's sometimes a shark species. Then you get on a smaller scale, you know, sort of more bilateral fisheries like salmon or mackerel. You can get, you know, smaller collections of countries. I'm getting hungry as we think about this. Yeah. But keep going. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the tuna RFMOs are about as big as they get. The tables there are may, have many, many countries around them. So it seems to me that the, the success you've had in accomplishing what you just explained as that collaborative process of the governments, the NGOs, the corporations, the scientists, it, it, my guess is it bleeds over into other agreements as well beyond just the tuna because some of the same players, I assume, are at the table. Yes, I mean, a lot of the governments are the same. Not necessarily a lot of the industry, maybe some. Uh, okay. Definitely some of the NGOs are the same and some of the scientists are the same. So, for example, we fund stock assessment methods workshops, sometimes on tuna, but sometimes broader than tuna, for example, or um, looking at marine protected areas and, and what species, you know, they may work for. So there are definitely some t science questions that we support that, that can bleed out. And then we talked a lot earlier about the need for monitoring of what's going on and enforcement. And we do a lot of pilot projects on electronic monitoring and electronic reporting and, and how to improve the data that's collected on board the vessels. Some of that is pooling what's already been developed in other fisheries and applying it to tuna fisheries, as well as then us funding some of it in tuna fisheries that can go out and be applied in other fisheries. And what, what role do the environmental community play in your organization? We do have an environmental stakeholder committee as well. Well, WWF, for starters, has two seats on our board of directors. They were our founding environmental partner. It says World Wildlife Fund. Uh, yes. Is that, that is, yes. Um, I, I, Another little fun fact, international nuance. In the U.S., they are World Wildlife Fund. And in elsewhere in the world, they are at the Worldwide Fund for Nature. So their global name is actually WWF, the world's leading conservation organization. <laughs> but they, we were very fortunate that they were our founding NGO partner. And they have had two spots on our board of directors um, since the beginning. We now also have um, other NGOs, Marine Stewardship Council, um, one of their executives is on our board of directors and scientists as well. But we have, a, just like we have a scientific advisory committee, we have an environmental stakeholder committee. And in addition to WWF, um, we have other NGOs such as Fishwise, who's right here in Santa Cruz, and uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, Jen Kemmerly, who heads that up as the chair of our environmental stakeholder committee. Um, SFP, which is the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership, Shark Advocates, um, a number of, you know, turtle, seabird, shark specialists. So that kind of helps us get some insight from the environmental community. And again, we're, it's all about trying to align our messages and advocacy with theirs, partnering with them. They have on the ground, you said you don't have a very big staff. How do you get all this work done? Right. Well, we have companies, but we also have NGO partners and we have the science partners. And, you know, WWF is in many, many countries and they have programs on the ground. And we're a partner in a really cool project with the FAO, WWF, and the Global Environment Facility, where we're going around and giving science workshops to fishery managers and fishery scientists in developing coastal states, starting to you know teach them about these other 
harvest strategies and other ways to manage tuna fisheries. So it's it's you know partnerships. They can they can really expand your reach. So not to make light of it, but as we're getting ready to go into another break, I, I was I'm sitting here listening to you talk about this, and I'm sure Michael has experienced as well. Your children have probably learned a lot about tuna over the years. So do they? take those sandwiches to lunch or after mom's talked about saving tuna worldwide they just take pb and j oh no they, <laughs> when they were little i know they're older now <laughs> then and now they're both large consumers of tuna <laughs> in all of its forms i was also surprised you know getting ready for this that i saw that you know, noah so you know, i think of noah as weather and and yet NOAA has an enforcement area, and NOAA is involved in this. I'm sure they're one of those you deal with in the United States. So we'll talk a little more about that, and I want to talk about bycatch process. I'd never heard that term before, but that's fascinating. After this break, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go, so it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. 
Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, the Dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. I have my guest co-host today, Michael Cohen, who's an international lawyer with Shepard Mullen. And today we've been just delighted to kick off our series on International Crossroads, which will be a twice-a-month series where we talk about issues of international law, which affect all of us almost as much as our domestic law does. Today, in kicking that off, we're just delighted to have Susan Jackson, who's the president of the International Seafood Sustainability Foundation. And before the break, Susan, I was asking about this concept of bycatch because we talked about a little during the break that little did I know that there are seven species of commercial oceanic tuna. So there's more than just Charlie, seven species of this and 23 substocks of tuna. So tuna is pretty complicated, but along with it comes all of these other uh, fish and mammals that get caught up in this discussion or in their nets. Yeah, what, Yeah. exactly. What is bycatch, Susan? So, it depends who you ask. That's part of the problem with the whole discussion around bycatch is people define bycatch in all sorts of different ways. ISSF defines bycatch as catching something 
when you're when you're trying to catch tuna, catching something that's not tuna. Well, that seems like a pretty simple answer. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> tuna, but, not tuna. Right, uh, right. Well, but, international governments need to negotiate it. <laughs> tuna, not yeah. tuna. And when you, but when you read articles or scientific studies about bycatch that are attempting to compare bycatch rates, you have to make sure that they're defining it the same because most often they're not. Um, one study to the other. So that's, that is a really key question. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that all fisheries have bycatch. I, that, that just is a fact. And, and there is no magically perfect fishing method. They all have things that are good about them and they all have things that need to be improved. And bycatch is one of them. But within bycatch, there's two different kinds. One is I caught something I didn't mean to catch. It's not a tuna but it sure tastes good to somebody and the, and the stocks are healthy, or at least we ought to be collecting data about it and making sure the stocks are healthy and manage them. And we sure as heck shouldn't be throwing them away. Okay, so, so that's one kind of cost. Bycatch. You have it, it's been hauled in. It could be used for food stock. It's valuable. It's a commodity now. <laughs> and I are, get that. There are places in the world where, that, where that's happening. Off the coast of West Africa, very, very vibrant markets for the minor tunas and the mahi-mahi and the rainbow runners and the other things that are caught. Um, the counter argument that people will make will say, tuna fishing's terrible. Look, there's a 9% bycatch rate. Well, that's because it's in West Africa where people are eating it. So that's why I'm saying it's complicated and you have to kind of peel through it. So what they're thinking but, of is things such as the sea turtles that we hear exactly. a lot about and, and dolphins are, and things that we, we do care about protecting. There are other types of bycatch, which while their rate may be very, very small, even if you catch one of them, it's really, really bad. Mm -hmm. And and that is some certain species of sharks or manta rays or whale sharks or or turtles. Um, so there there's oftentimes not a lot of interaction, but you really need to work on minimizing or eliminating that interaction. But tunas are caught by per se nets, and those are the the big boats that have the the big net that circles a school of tuna. And in fact, that's what we see when we go down to the historic section of of Monterey, because I think it was purse seiners that they used to catch all the sardines, yeah. if I remember correctly. So when you're when a purse seiner is catching tuna on any one fishing trip, they'll catch a free school. They'll catch tunas that are aggregating around some log or some something dead animal that's just floating on the top. They some will catch tunas that are associating with dolphins, so they'll look for dolphins. And some will actually put in the water something they make, and they'll put a little radio beacon on it, and, and it becomes what's called a fat or a fish aggregating device. Persaners catch all that, all those different ways. Then there's long lining, and there's Poland line, and there's gillnet caught tuna. Each one of them has different types of bycatch interactions. So um, you can't, there's not a single one that's doesn't have any bycatch. So it sounds well, like what, what does ISSF do? I was about to say bycatch. Yep. Yeah. So ISSF, first of all, with regard to advocacy, we're working on making sure that the bycatch mitigation measures that are known are actually required. And in longlining, for example, there's a lot of mitigation measures that are known for sharks and turtles and seabirds. Making sure that they're required and that those requirements are implemented is, is mostly where we're focusing there. On the purse-sane side, we're working, especially with uh, fish aggregating devices or those floating object sets, because that's a relatively new development. What can be done there to minimize the catch 
of other species. So, And I do have to say, I was kind of fascinated reading about it. So if they put, I, I had a hard time visualizing it, but they actually create a something, they put it out there, and it's a lure mm -hmm. to tuna. And they gather around, what? saying, what is that? What is that? <laughs> well, they didn't just stumble onto this, you know. For decades, um, boats would find schools of tuna by looking for birds. Ah, okay. And those birds would, would take them to where the tuna were, and the tuna were typically there because there was something in the water, like a log. And so then some crafty captain said, well, if I put a radio beacon on the log, I can leave it here and I can find it again. And then from, from there it went. Um, so... What we're doing on that is we're putting actually scientists on board fishing boats. We're partnering with fishing companies, putting scientists on boats. The science develop, scientists develop protocols to try to find ways that either develop new techniques, develop new equipment, try to learn what's under those logs or, or fads and, and avoid schools of tuna that don't have, you know, or that do have critical species under them. But it's a really cool partnership where we have scientists on board the fishing boats, scientists learn things, they publish papers, but then they also go out and talk to other captains. They've talked to over a thousand fishing captains around the world, training them on the best practices that are known, as well as getting their input. So it's a very large, robust, global give and take. Um, one of my favorite interactions really early on was we had all the Spanish fleet in a room with scientists. So fishers from you know, basically the same hometown. They all came home for Christmas. They were fishing all over the world. And a scientist said, I don't even remember what he thought. He's like, I think this is happening. And if you did that, well, you could avoid it. Well, before and we take off, tell us how people can learn more about your foundation. What's your website? Our website is iss-foundation.org. Susan Jackson, thanks for being with us. Somebody who's not just talking about stuff, but doing it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, Thank you. for listening today. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, a reminder that you can hear an archive of today's program at wagnerandwinnick.com. You can also go to voiceamerica.com on the business channel and hear a repeat of today's program. As we remind you every week as we close this show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. is always a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.